This is the workshop on self-harm. If you're looking for integrating mental health and your faith, it's in the big hall. Okay, you've um, hopefully had a chance to have a, a, a bit of a discussion within the groups. Let's uh, just take a few of the thoughts that we've come up with. Whoever's willing to share one thing about what has been suggested. Anyone? Hands up or, yeah? Someone who disregards pain. Someone who disregards pain. Okay, anyone else? Drinking too much. Drugs. Um, I've done some interesting DIY with various ladders. <laughs> DIY. <laughs> right, not eating, overeating. Anything else? Putting themselves consciously or subconsciously into a position where they could end up being harmed, yeah? Workaholic, overworking. overworking. Control. Control. Playing on the computer. Playing on the computer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, any more? Relationships. Relationships, okay. Any more? Thinking negatively about themselves. Abused by someone leading to low self-esteem. And actually, for some people, actually putting themselves in that position. Yeah. Yeah. Not actually going for medical care. Getting overtired. Getting overtired. Actually not getting enough sleep. Okay, it is quite a range of different things. Now... If you think about life in general, there is this interesting question as to when is a risk an acceptable risk? When is what we do going to cause harm to us in one shape or other? It's like the question about DIY. Is it something we should choose to do? Well, if you're always accident prone, maybe you should get someone else to do it for you. Um, but actually, where are, what is an acceptable risk? What isn't an acceptable risk? What actually is deliberate and what isn't? I know some people who take risks and actually are very reckless in taking risks. But are they actually looking at doing something that's deliberate to harm themselves? Or is the actual harm a consequence of their recklessness? There are many actions. This is the self-harm workshop, yeah? There are many actions people undertake which can result in harm to themselves. These may include ex extreme sports, drinking, drugs, unprotected sex, driving at speed, um, and it goes on and on and on. The list goes on. Well, I, I used to do some exercises when I was teaching nurses and nursing assistants in hospital, and actually, things like uh, relationships and unprotected sex and that sort of thing came up quite regularly in some of the discussions that they would come up with. Obviously, it wouldn't come up in a Christian environment, would it? Um, or would it? Um, these actions may be reckless, um, or in but, or, but often they're not decidedly intentional of causing harm to themselves. They might result in harm, but actually... It's the person taking actions because of the action. Um, it's like if you are driving fast 
you're either in a hurry to get somewhere or you enjoy the speed, you're doing it for other reasons other than the fact you want to cause an accident normally. And the same with lots of things. It's like, you know, unprotected sex is because actually you've got a drive to have the sex. You're not thinking about the consequences. When you're drinking too much, when you're taking drugs, often you're focusing on the consequence of what you want from the action, not the negative outcome. That is not what I'm thinking about when we talk about self-harm. Self-harm is not reckless behaviour where you do something and it has an adverse consequence, which actually is almost secondary to it. Self-harm is something far more deliberate. My background, yes, I'm a director of Mind and Soul. Um, my background is in social work. I was an approved social worker for many years. I specialised in suicide and self-harm and was a specialist deliberate self-harm worker for a general hospital for quite a number of years. And so anyone who actually was admitted to the hospital having attempted suicide or in any way self-harmed, they were sort of punished almost by being sent to me. Um, I was the person who had to assess them, meet with them, try to see what could be done to offer them help and assistance. And so over the years, I actually met literally hundreds and hundreds of people um, who had either attempted suicide or self-harmed. Now, that's, that's my background. That's why I've got an interest in this. Having said that, in fact, when I first started working in mental health, back in 1983, um, I was really thrown in the deep end because... I started running um, a residential unit up in Norfolk and it was a, a Christian community which took people who had been in psychiatric hospital who needed somewhere to, give, to be given support, somewhere where they could go as a sort of stepping stone from hospital out into the community. And I guess for me, it was really sort of... Um, a, an awakening to the needs of people when quite a number of the people we were taking in had either attempted suicide or self-harmed. And it's then a question of what do you do in the middle of the night when you've got someone who has just self-harmed or is talking about self-harming? How do you respond? What do you say? So I'm coming to this from a Christian perspective, but also one where I've worked for many years with people in a professional capacity. I'm going to try to share with you some of the experience I've got. I'm coming on the assumption that some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about, but others will actually be coming here to find out some understanding of what's going through the mind of a person who's contemplating self-harming. For me... Self-harm is a deliberate and intentional action designed to cause harm or pain to the person's self. When we talk about self-harm, we are talking about something where there is an intention to cause harm. It's something deliberate. There's some, the action is designed to actually do some damage, to actually do something to you, as opposed to what we've just been talking about, which is the reckless aspect Sometimes a person, if they've got low self-esteem or if they've gone through all sorts of experiences in their life, they may well be 
self-harming and reckless. Or they may be self-harming, reckless and suicidal. But I actually want to be quite careful to actually separate suicide attempts from self-harming. Because self-harm of itself is not an act of attempted suicide. Often people throw the two together, but I'm very cautious to try to separate them. Because when it comes to self-harming, there is not an intention to kill yourself. In all the people I've assessed over many years who have attempted suicide in one way or other, whether that's by taking a, an overdose or one of the other many and varied ways, including cutting your wrists, and I've actually spoken to people in a lot of depth about what was happening to them and why, often they'll be saying to me, at the point of when they did it, they had every intention of it being a suicide attempt. But when you talk to someone who has been self-harming, it's something very different. It's something very different. Because it's not an attempt to kill yourself, it's actually a way of trying to cope with life. The person who is self-harming is actually trying to cope with being alive. It's not nihilistic. It's not trying to end your life. It's actually trying to live. Something else I'd want to say to you is that it's not just attention-seeking. Lots of people have said to me over the years, Self-harm is just attention-seeking. It's not. It's often done in private. It's often done on parts of the body which are not actually visible and are often covered with clothing. Generally speaking, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, it's a personal act and not a public one. And it often comes to light only by accident or if the individual panics about the depth of the cut and they recognise the need for help. It's not normally done to be seen immediately. And at times, of obviously, if you cut your arms and you end up wearing a sleeveless shirt or something, at some point people will see the scars. But often when you actually do the cutting, you don't actually then go out and display it. But actually, it's, you know, it's one of those things where people don't necessarily look for people to notice it. It's actually trying to cope with how you're feeling. So who is it that self-harms? Is it just young, hysterical women? That's what it's often made out to be, isn't it? I'm sure you've seen that in, in the media at times. You may be surprised, but both men and women self-harm. In many ways, if you look at the statistics, more women self-harm than men. But that's actually probably because women will do it in certain ways and men do it in other ways. Men are probably much more likely to get themselves into situations where they will fight someone else but actually cause harm for themselves by doing so. Or they'll hit a wall or they'll express how they're feeling and deal with what's actually pent up on the inside in a different way. 
And often we don't classify that as being, in quotes, self-harm in the same way as we would in the clinical way with cutting. So in some ways, yes, there is a bias towards women, but I think that is because there's a difference in what people do. Yes, to some degree, there is, it's, it's quite likely to be happening with younger people. But actually, if you look around at the people who present themselves over the years, there's quite a lot of people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and older, who self-harm. Sometimes life changes and people are able to leave it behind them. It's something which is part of a transition period in their life. For others, it can be very much part of their life, even into their more mature years. When you actually look at statistics about young people, one of the more common statistics is that one in ten of teenagers self-harm. And within the young people, the ratio of female to male is about three to one. So there is a bias towards women. I've already said there's an issue there as to how you define it. But why does a person do something like self-harming? Most people, when they think about self-harming, you know, if, 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 if it's not something you do, most people look, looking from the outside in sort of think, how could anyone do that? It's scary. It's frightening. It's one of those things you back off from. I actually run a confidential helpline called Lifeline. And if I was to ask my volunteers when we recruit people, what are the scariest things that they are going to be facing when it comes to telephone calls, the scariest ones which come up are either a suicide call or someone threatening to self-harm. And it's a question then of trying to prepare the volunteers for what they might experience. Actually, many people stumble into self-harming. Some might act initially out of anger or frustration and hit something or cut themselves in an attempt to express pain. And actually, if you hit something, you might actually suddenly feel some form of relief, that you've taken out your energy, that pent-up feeling on the inside. You've done something, and you've got that pain, and it feels as if you've done something to release how you're feeling on the inside. And actually... A lot of people start off by doing something similar. They strangely feel better on the inside. Some may hear about self-harming from others and actually copy it. And it's not unusual in schools to actually hear about it. You'll hear that someone has told their friend that this is what they do and actually it has these consequences. And it's a way of coping with how you're feeling. If you're feeling bad on the inside, how about doing this? It happens. It particularly happens in adolescent units where, someone, you know, where you've got people going in with significant emotional hurt and pain and everyone's trying to deal with it. And actually, at times, you'll have one person or a few of them already self-harming and they'll actually share 
how it feels. And it may sound very strange what I'm saying to you, but I'll try to explain what I mean as we go along. For some, it might be actually that starts as a suicide attempt. And this is where suicide and self-harm does overlap to some degree. That's okay. Um, Because a number of people I've known over the years have actually attempted to cut their wrist and realised that they get some form of relief just by doing the cut. And they get a sensation and it makes them feel a bit better. And they actually don't go through with the suicide attempt, but they actually realise that the cutting bit had some impact. It's a strange thing. I'll come back to that later. Some are drawn to self-harm through stress. For young people, schoolwork, the pressure of exams may be a trigger. Others find that self-harm gives them a sense of control. A control over something in their lives which may be completely controlled by other people and they feel out of control. And yet, by doing something to themselves, they feel that they're taking control back on themselves. Self-harm can be a way to make a person feel real. If you actually feel that you're out of touch with the world around you, if you're out of touch with who you are, and your feelings, sometimes actually creating a sensation, a pain, can actually make you feel real and alive in a way that you don't otherwise. Self-harm is a very taboo subject. Some, someone new to the subject will feel, yeah, a sense of horror and shock and be disturbed by the thoughts of the self-injury. It is gory in nature, just by the very nature of it. And believe me, working in a hospital environment is quite, you know, it's not the easiest thing to do. But the important thing is that whatever the the reaction we have within ourselves, we must avoid getting that sort of comeback, you know, that backing off bit, the avoidance bit that is so natural. We think of it and we back off. However, if you know someone who is self-harming, what they actually need is your support, you being there. They don't need necessarily for you to be the rescuer or to become the carer or to actually take over their life. But actually what they need is someone to just be there and not be shocked and scared off by it. Someone to actually see them as a person and not first and foremost to see the self-harm. Self-harm is not usually an attempt to end their life. It's actually a way to live a means to cope with life. It may be a learnt coping mechanism that gives the individual a chance to relieve the internal tension and pressure and distress that's going on within them. 
Self-harm is not a mental illness of itself. The fact that someone does it does not indicate inherently that they've got this mental illness called self-harm. They are not the self-harmer, and that's their diagnosis. Self-harm is a symptom, not the condition. And I think that is something which I would be quite strongly stressing here. It's not of itself a mental illness. They are basically very keen to be seen as being individuals. They will be frightened that if they admit to you how they feel, that you might see them as being mad. But actually, what we're looking at is a symptom to what's going on inside. They're trying to cope with the hurt, the pain, the distress, the anguish that's going on within the person. It may be that it links into some sort of specialist issues that are affecting that person, certain psychological states. It may be that they are suffering from a mental illness, which could be depression or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or personality disorder. But the fact they're self-harming is actually a symptom of the distress that's within. It usually occurs as a self-inflicted injury. The most common aspect of it is cutting. But it can include stabbing or burning. I've mentioned hitting hard objects. But it, I could go on. And I don't really necessarily give, need to give you a masterclass in how to do it, because that's not my role. But there is a range. You've got the more common aspect, but there's also some more unusual ones. And some of the more unusual ones are actually often associated with people with Down syndrome or significant learning impairment, because they may well be trying to express something from the inside of how they're feeling and actually trying to do something about coping with what's happening on the inside. So actually, with certain types of self-harm, the more unusual ones, like swallowing things and, and doing odd, slightly more odder things, which are not so overtly doing immediate harm, immediate pain, but actually a bit stranger, may actually have a slightly different route to them. And it actually, in some ways, go into a slightly different area of specialism. Now, it is a way to cope with inner feelings. If you feel deep, intense hurt, frustration, tension, pain, anger on the inside, and you don't know how to express the feelings, and earlier on you heard Kate talking about feelings, about you know, facing what emotions are, and about the question of what you do with your emotions and the cat inside the box. And if you think of the cat inside the box trying to get out, and it's causing such a disruption on the inside, sometimes, sometimes it feels safer to actually deal with that by looking at causing pain on the outside to express the pain on the inside. It's a way of coping with what's happening rather than just bottling up what's on the inside. 
For some people, it can be some form of ritual, a means of self-punishment. They feel the need to punish themselves because of something they've done or something that's been put upon them, that's been done to them, that they feel that there's a need to let the evil out, bloodletting type stuff, a means of sacrifice. One of my clients once had grown up in a Christian home and his father was an active church member, but he had rejected the Christian faith. He had rejected God completely. The problem was he was left with the uh, situation where he knew that he'd done things wrong. But he also knew that God didn't exist, at least according to how he believed at the time. So if God didn't exist, he then saw himself as the final arbiter of what's right and what's wrong. And if he knew it was wrong in himself, he then saw that he had the responsibility to punish himself. And so actually, part of the self-harming was actually him punishing himself because he felt he had done something wrong. And rather than actually accepting who God is and that Jesus came to die for our sins and we could be forgiven, he saw that he couldn't be forgiven and therefore had to pay a punishment. And so for him... The punishment was the self-harming. Also, someone else comes to mind who um, had a fixation about, um, about the fact that he felt he needed to purge himself of blood. And you know, like in the past, you actually had bloodletting. For, yeah, for certain people, they actually see the need to actually see the blood come out. And actually, ha- that has an effect. But for a lot of people is actually a means to deal with inner distress. Causing physical pain can deflect a person's attention from the inner pain, albeit for a limited period of time. For a while it can be easier to cope with physical pain instead of the deep emotional psychological pain. The the person can be reassured that they are alive, that they are real. Why does it do that? The way it does it is this. When God made your body, God made your body ready to deal with an attack. You are made in a wonderful and marvellous way. If you don't believe in God, some people may not be Christians here, from my perspective, I believe we're made in a wonderful, marvellous way by God. But either way, your body works in a very special way. If you are attacked, your body goes into a defence mechanism which automatically goes into self-protection. There is a complex internal physical response to the attack. If you get injured, your body responds in a very special way. This response involves powerful chemicals, not chemicals that you take, but powerful chemicals that your body makes. The chemicals are called endorphins. Endorphins sounds like drugs, doesn't it? Well, they are. They're incredibly powerful. Similar to things like morphine. Similar to some of the other drugs which people might take 
and abuse. But these are being created by your body. They're created for a particular purpose, to help you at that time of attack. And the fact is, what happens is that they are designed to enable you to cope with the injury, to give you a natural tranquilizing effect, to relieve the pain, to give relief to physical and emotional pain, and to give you that calmness to be able to deal with the situation. And I think lots of people in this room will know what it's like to have been in an accident and you go into a certain state, or to have had an injury, or even with things like bereavement, you actually go into a particular state. This is your body's reaction to that crisis. And that's what's happening when a person gets injured. The endorphins lift the mood, they give a high, and the idea is to actually give you the ability to fight or flight away from that dangerous situation. That is natural, it's God-given, it's designed to work in a particular situation. However, if you do it to yourself, your body still reacts in that way. Your body still creates the chemical and will still give you those effects. So if you self-harm and you create the injury to your body, you will feel that tranquilizing effect. You'll feel that relief to your pain. The, the numbing, the calming will be felt. The high that it can give you has been compared to almost any other possible high that you could imagine. I worked in a secular environment and a lot of my clients would just be quite honest about how it felt to them. And quite a number of them said that the high of self-harming was better than any sexual orgasm they'd ever had because it has that impact of relief, release, and a high. That's what we're talking about when it comes to self-harm. It's quite powerful. And because it's so powerful, you are creating within yourself a chemical. It actually becomes addictive, not because you're taking something, but you're creating something. It's the release of the endorphins, and you get to the point where you actually know what's happening, you know how to do it, and you know the effect it's going to have. And if it's a choice of the internal pain that's on the inside, and all that you're dealing with, or actually dealing with it through, in a sense, self-medicating, if the pressure's building up inside more and more and more, and you know that you can release it, it's not surprising that people learn how to do it. It is a type of addictive behavior, a dependency. A dependency because it's the chemical, the release. But also, when it comes to self-harming, people react. And actually, there's a th another type of dependency that can be created. If you react as, your, as the parent, the friend, the person at church, whatever it is, and you actually go overboard with emotional response, you can almost get to the point of giving them an additional bonus. They may not be doing it for the effect initially, 
But if it's a means to an end, in the end, it might actually encourage them to do it. It's, I'm not saying people start doing it that way, but actually, you know, you know, when it came to the work I was doing, it got to the point where people knew that to get services from health and social services, actually, you went to see the person who was specialising in suicide and self-harm. You got straight into getting your services, whereas you might have to go into a waiting list otherwise. And the, the, the problem is that that may not be why they're doing it, but you can actually encourage it rather than deal with it by the way you respond, by overreacting, by actually giving an emotional gain. So actually, self-harming cycles can be incredibly hard to break because of the natural effect caused by the endorphins and... On top of that, the internal psychological, emotional distress that's on the inside. And actually, that really is a challenge. And that's why, when you're faced in a church setting, in a community setting, in a hospital setting, lots of people find it very hard to deal with self-harm. Because actually, you think, where do we go? Do we do what is natural to do? The normal thing to say to a person who's self-harming is what? Don't do it. Isn't it? You see someone who has self-harmed before. They are saying to you that they find it really hard to stop self-harming. And you'll naturally say to them, you mustn't do it. You can start quoting Bible passages at them saying the Bible forbids it. Don't do it. It's completely against what the Bible says. And I can give you the passages if you want. But, actually, that's really difficult. Because think about it. We're talking about an outward expression of internal distress and anguish, where the person is self-medicating by creating a chemical inside themselves to cope with the pain that's on the inside. And unless you deal with the pain on the inside, if you tell them to stop, what's going to happen to them? Where's the pain going to go? It's the cat inside the box, scratching away, saying, I want attention, I want to be dealt with. And that internal pain from the cat's claws at times can be covered by the physical pain of self-harm. Often, I would have, um, if I had some paper here, I'd, I'd draw a squidgy ball. I don't know how many of you sort of know these stress balls. You can get stress balls, yeah? When, when I, with one of my clients many years ago, I had a stress ball, and in fact, this client was so stressed, they destroyed the stress ball. The stress ball couldn't cope with it. But we actually had this stress ball. And the stress ball actually got damaged, and you had this bit of it sticking out. And it was this, it had this blob sticking out of it because of the damage to the stress ball. And it actually made me think. Because realistically, in a sense, the symptom of self-harm is like that blob coming out of the stress ball. You try pushing it in, where's it going to go? And actually, time and time again, you just say, stop, you push in, and it will come out somewhere else. 
that hurt, that pain, that distress, that anguish will come out somewhere else unless it's dealt with. And that's the problem about looking at self-harm without looking at what's underneath it. Because remember what I said originally, self-harm is the symptom of an underlying condition, an underlying need, an underlying hurt and pain. The problem with self-harm is that any other addictive or dependency type behaviour where you try to deal with it, and unless you deal with what's underneath it, you've got a problem. Also, because of the chemical nature of it, it has a dependency aspect of its own. And so what you're needing to look at are two things here. One is that underneath it, what's causing it, why the person's got the hurt, the pain, the anguish, but also looking at dealing with what is an effect, a dependency or addictive behaviour. Self-harm is an abnormal coping mechanism which we should never, ever encourage. It is dangerous to the individual. It can tend to escalate in that if you do it, and you do it, over time you may need to do it more or more often or deeper, and so it can escalate, and it can have other risks attached. Obviously, you've got the risk of infection and anemia and all the rest. Also, you've got others may be tempted to copycat behaviours. But there is the need to deal with what's there. It can be dangerous, it can be a, appear attractive. I know some hospitals over the years have actually created self-harm rooms. They've recognised that at the time people can't deal with their self-harm and so actually have supplied the blade and all the bits you, they would need to actually patch up afterwards and actually have a controlled environment to deal with self-harm. You may be horrified by that, but it has happened in the UK in certain hospitals. Why? Because it's the recognition that for a certain person at a certain time, it's meeting a need. I wouldn't say that's something I'm happy with because there is an issue in my mind as to how much of that is encouraging. And there's all sorts of issues with that one. And there's the issue about colluding and, and all the rest. Having said that, there is a real concern as to what you do. Okay? Responding to an incident of self-harm. I'd say to you, so you need to be calm, matter of fact, and practical. The most important thing is, if someone's cut them, themselves, um, treat it like any other injury. The fact they did it to themselves doesn't stop it being a cut. So it needs to be dealt with as a cut. So it can be dealt with at home, deal with it as a cut. If it needs to go to hospital and to be stitched, deal with it in a normal way. Don't panic. Don't get caught up in the emotional state because of it. Being calm is by far the best thing. You need to look at physical safety, the person's well-being, and also minimising that heightened emotional issue. 
The person needs to be noticed as a person, not as a self-harmer. And actually, this is one thing that um, is quite important in that there is a real key that if someone comes to the church and you know they have self-harmed, don't focus on the self-harm. Don't ask them all the time, have you self-harmed this week? Because actually you're treating the person as a self-harmer and you're actually seeing them as a condition. What you need to do is see them as them. The challenge we had is don't offer the services to the person because they self-harm, but actually offer the person the services to try to ensure that they don't self-harm and actually they're helped through from where they are. It is actually quite important to be caring for the person as a person all the time, not because of the cut. There shouldn't be this question of shaming them, naming them, blaming them, talking about them. But there's actually a need to encourage the person to be able to talk about their feelings in a safe place. Depending on your setting, whether they can actually begin to explore and express what's going on on the inside. It may need specialist help, counsellors, prayer ministry teams. It may need a specialist unit, like we have mercy ministries that I'm aware of who, who actually do take people who self-harm into their, their home. But there are needs that that person has to actually be seen as them and a chance to explore what's going on and dealing with that inner pain. And that is a real challenge. We need to be there for them. If they need expert help, don't be afraid of looking for expert help. Because it's very easy in a church setting to actually say, no, this is, we're Christians here, we don't need to actually send for the psychiatrist or the GP or the social worker or the nurse. We can deal with it. It's within the family. Actually recognise at times this person needs something which we cannot offer. So look beyond. Look to specialist Christian organisations or to secular organisations depending on what the need is. Protect yourselves as well as them. We need to look and get advice, not just for them, but actually for us, to support us as we support them. We need to maybe help them to understand themselves and actually what's going on on the inside. For some people, actually it's really important that if they begin to know what's happening in their inner emotions and thoughts, in that build-up to self-harming, it can give them more of an awareness of what's happening, what's triggering it, what's causing the tension, the build-up. And actually just being there and giving them the opportunity to explore that. I've already said, if you don't address the underlying issues and you try to stifle the self-harm, then you may actually cause even more destructive behaviours. And his destructive behaviours can be just as dangerous, if not more so. There are actually some practical things you can do to actually encourage a different um, sensation other than the cutting. 
And I'll quickly run through a few of them just to let you know what's around and what people might be told. I'm not saying that you would tell the person, but actually this is what they might be told maybe by the professionals. Um, suggestions might be, and this is, it's the, you know when you try to give up smoking, or at least you may have, even if you haven't tried to give up smoking, you may have heard people are given sort of um, chewing gum or patches or this or that as a, as a means to try to actually deal with that sort of that feeling that you need to do something. Um, some ideas. An elastic band, if you actually put it around your wrist and you ping the elastic band, it can create a sensation of pain. And for some people, that actually can actually make a difference in actually creating that sensation. For others, it's going through the motion of... Um, looking as if you're cutting, but doing it with a blunt blade, something that won't cut, but actually going through a motion which is, creates a sensation, but actually is not cutting and doesn't actually do any damage to the skin. For others, it's getting ice out of the freezer, like an ice cube, and actually putting it on the skin. And that creates a sensation quite similar to, to cutting. And for some people, it seems to work. For others, it's drawing a line on their arm using a, a sort of thick felt pen, a red felt pen, which actually creates a red line, but also creates a sensation of the, almost like the cut. It's similar to the idea of the knife, but actually it's using a red pen. Others, finding alternative ways to release endorphins, exercise, um, maybe eating hot foods, chilli, curry, Intense mints, you know, the extra, extra, extra strong mints. Things like that can actually give that, you know, that kick, that whatever, that hints at the endorphin release. Hot showers, cold showers. For others, finding a distraction, something that's enjoyable to distract the person. For others, it's actually writing out their feelings. For others, it's actually getting a pillow and punching the pillow or shouting at the pillow or doing... <coughs> but all of these things are just practical methods, but they are only temporary. They could only be used to actually help the person in the short term. What you really need is to actually deal with what's underneath. And that's why you need to look at help. Help, support for the person, and help and support for you being alongside them. And obviously, as a Christian, I actually do believe in prayer. And if you are in a church setting and you're working alongside someone, pray that God shows you what to say, how to say it, how to respond, how to be there, when to be there, and putting boundaries. You know, things about pastoral crises we talked about earlier, making sure the boundaries are right, making sure that you know where you stand, and they know where you stand, and they know what you're offering. Don't say, call me any time. Don't say, do this, and, and then let them down. Things like that. But do pray for them. Offer them hope and acceptance. And also, look to see whether or not there is some form of prayer ministry or Christian counselling which can actually help deal with what's <coughs> underneath. And it really is looking at dealing with an addiction and the causation, not just stopping themselves harming. That's just 
me trying to share with you a range of the different ideas and thoughts I've come up with over the years. I hope it's some help. Um, we're really running out of time, but I'll take a question if anyone's got a burning question. Yes. Yeah, very much so. It, 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 you end up actually becoming um, dependent on what you're creating within you. And actually, some people are more likely to become addicted to certain things than others. You know, some people have addictive personalities or addictive you know, sort of physical natures. And actually, for that sort of person, it's harder to stop self-harming because actually there's still going to be that craving to have something met. And so actually breaking the addiction can, for them, be a lot harder. That's why I'm saying, stressing, it's what's underneath, but it's also the addictive behaviour. I think we'd better stop there, otherwise I'll be in trouble with me, because <laughs> I'm, I'm meant to be introducing up there. Thanks for coming, and... Uh,